My name is Bob Brashear, and I'm currently the pastor of the West Park Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And that uh, is both an honor, and it's also um, something that I have to live up to, in that West Park Presbyterian Church was the first more like Presbyterian Church when its session passed a more like statement in uh, September of 1978 in response to the action of the 1978 General Assembly. So for me to be there, uh, it's, it's something to live up to. And I would say that uh, 1978 was also a significant year because with the study that came before the General Assembly, I was at that point uh, serving in eastern Oklahoma and I remember gathering with uh, my circle of liberal clergy friends and we talked about this and my first response was that as a liberal I was clearly in favor of ordination but I just didn't see how it could be justified biblically. And as we moved through the study, uh, my whole sense of that reality changed very, very much. And when we took the first vote in uh, Eastern Oklahoma Presbytery, it was uh, 86 against and seven in favor. So it was a pretty small minority. There was also a personal angle uh, to it in that one of my friends from seminary, Chris Glosser, was one of the four whose ordinations uh, were hanging in the balance at that General Assembly. And I think that one of the things that's always been true in this movement is that it's personal relationships that move us from one position to another more than almost anything. As you look back just on the movement from your perspective as a captain of a ship who is representing in that way. What, what, what memories do you have about, you know, from the Oklahoma place mm -hmm. of your life to, to, to um, where you are now? And does you, how did you get to the place where you are the pastor of one of the first Mormon churches? Is it, was it a pursuit or just describe the path? First of all, I also want to uh, lift up something very important to the history, and that is I've been part of Presbyterian Health Education and Welfare Association since 1977. And the person who is the director of PHWA, uh, Rod Martin, um, was first of all one who signed as a commissioner a dissent uh, to that 78 decision at General Assembly. But it was very important to Rod within PHWA to create a safe space where people could be themselves and not have to worry about uh, being outed or not have to worry about how anyone would respond to them. And Rod's influence on me was, was very, very strong. Um, I lived in Rod's apartment in New York City from 1982 to 83, and there were always people coming through that apartment to spend the night. And I remember uh, saints like uh, John and Kathy Connor from uh, Oregon, who were also uh, leaders in this. John was another former moderator. Uh, so more than anything, I think it's personal relationships that moved me forward in this whole process. PHWA had a couple of important moments that are worth lifting up. Uh, in 1993, at our biennial, we passed a statement of inclusion, and uh, that brought very quickly on our heads the wrath of the institutional church, um, Jerry Van Martyr, Presbyterian News Service, published an article saying, PHWA joins the front lines of gay ordination, you know, and we had simply passed a very simple statement uh, in favor of inclusion. And then in 1995, there was a somewhat humorous moment when uh, 
Janie Spar had been invited to preach at the Presbyterian Center in Louisville, and the then executive director, James Brown, disinvited her. So at the 1995 uh, biennial, Howard Warren, who was sort of a one-man Presbyterian act up, uh, put forward a resolution accusing James Brown of the sin of Sodom, uh, meaning lack of hospitality. But it got picked up by the uh, layman as uh, uh, Howard Warren accuses James Brown of sodomy. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was typical of Howard's sense of humor and his wonderful way of being a gadfly. Uh, and the fallout of that was rather, uh, rather strong in that PHWA got called up before General Assembly and uh, Mark Wendorf, the executive director, was basically left to hang in the wind by his uh, superior and wound up losing his job. So, I mean, there is a downside to that. But these are the kind of moments that stay with you. Uh, it was in, also in 95 that we gave our annual award to Matt English, who had been selected to succeed me in Tulsa uh, and had wound up working in Dallas and was dying of AIDS. And uh, he preached a very, very strong sermon and uh, wound up being uh, really uh, dragged over the coals by the Presbyterian layman. And it was very painful for us to see that uh, uh, Matt was uh, being treated by his church. He was also being denied uh, certain uh, medical benefits at that time. And uh, it was... It was painful for us to see that there was greater welcome and inclusivity in the outside world than there was within the church. Um, so these are the moments that sort of move us forward. The last one, and personally I would bring up, was when my good friend Janet Edwards, uh, I had worked in Pittsburgh for 10 years, which is my original home. And after I'd moved to New York City, Janet was brought up on uh, charges for having performed a, quote, gay marriage, unquote. Uh, and I was called in to be a witness uh, because the other crazy part of the charges was that she was accused of both having performed an illegal marriage and then having not used Trinitarian language. And, uh, in other words, saying you did something you shouldn't do and you did it wrong. Uh, and I was called in as an expert on interfaith marriage since I'd chaired that uh, task force for the uh, denomination. And ultimately, that part of the charges were dropped. But that trial was very significant because, again, on a personal level, I was in New York City where my church not only allowed but encouraged me to perform, quote, gay marriages, unquote, and actually call them marriages. And I could do that completely freely while very close friends of mine in other parts of the country would have their ordinations put up uh, in jeopardy uh, by doing the same thing. So... Part of what I'm saying in all of this, when I think of my mentors like Rod Martin, I think of my friends like Chris Glosser and Janet Edwards and others, my staying in this more than anything is a sense of feeling like, like I owe them something uh, for what I've learned from them and from the way they've helped me grow, that those personal relationships keep me in a place of commitment. And more than anything, that's probably why I'm here. Uh, also, just in order to hear the stories and to remember this decades-long struggle. But more than anything, uh, relationships draw you in and relationships keep you there. So, in the recent advent then of Tenet and the um, 
face of a more genuine inclusivity by the church. Um, what do you think, uh, discuss your observations about the effect of that shift in barometric pressure, if you will, on the movement, the liberation movement for gays and lesbians? Well, this is what I think is going to be interesting. I think we saw the first signs of it at the last General Assembly, and that is that for decades, the uh, the breaking line, the division line, and if you want to call it between liberal and conservative or progressive and others within the church, has been issues around uh, LGBTQ issues and ordination, marriage, etc., etc. And once you remove that from the board, then other issues begin to come into conflictual areas. And what I say, what I mean when I say that is if you look at the last General Assembly, the votes on ordination and marriage, et cetera, were really very, very uh, strong votes. And the most controversial issue, of course, was the uh, divestment from Israel and Palestine. And it was really interesting to see people wearing the, uh, the stoles on both sides of that debate. And it was a very, very narrow debate. So I think that we're going to see uh, the understanding of what it means to be progressive to be more contentious. We've seen the conservatives sort of step to the sidelines so that they're really not contending. Uh, so that the debate that takes place now is going to be a kind of different debate. And our understanding of what it means to be inclusive, progressive, etc., is really going to be pushed to some new places. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see. I think that's really important to, to speak about because one of the issues that's going to be emerging, if you look around, this is a, it's a pretty white group. And within New York City Presbytery, which may well be the most liberal presbytery in the country, um, the, the small opposition votes to these issues almost always comes from our churches of color. And I believe that there's a real challenge to this movement begin to find ways to reach out and engage in dialogue, uh, the churches of color, the international churches, etc. I have in my building right now a Korean congregation that meets there in the afternoon, later in the afternoon, uh, a, a Francophone African Presbyterian uh, congregation, and they're very, very uncomfortable by the visible signs of our support for LGBTQ issues in, in our sanctuary. So we have to find ways to extend this dialogue. Uh, on the secular side, it's been extremely exciting for me to be part of the Black Lives Matter movement and see the very visible and open acceptance of queer leadership in that movement. Uh, very, very open and very present without any question about it, which is a new thing in the uh, what I would call the civil rights or that, that, that form of the movement. 
And I think the church has a lot to learn from that, that our young people are taking things places where we haven't been yet, and it's important for this movement to find out ways to build those bridges and to see if we can make those connections. Say something about the, 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 what that dialogue looks like from a substance standpoint, like from a, from a conversational standpoint. Where are the, you know, a lot of the churches that, that, that those who object to the more like um, framework of inclusion generally do so on biblical bases and on a particular theological understanding, mm-hmm. right? So um, in, in terms of them reaching out, in terms of there being dialogue, talk about the, your, your sense of what the focus of that would best be, would, 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 what the best focus for that kind of dialogue would be. I want to say three things about that, one of which is you used the word conversation, and I think it's a really important uh, word. I think one of the reasons that we were able to get uh, these amendments passed by the presbyteries is that um, before this last round of votes, the uh, Covenant Network and allies came up with the idea of uh, committing to a thousand conversations, uh, not engaging in didactic uh, polarizing debate but choosing instead to make a commitment to engage in conversations. And I feel like that, more than anything, was a strategic move that really helped move this forward. Because when you take it out of having to defend a position and open it up into being able to have a conversation, it opens up some new possibilities. Now, the content of this conversation, I think, has to be twofold, one of which is both personal and also biblical. And there was a point in Pittsburgh where I spent a year as a pastor of uh, what was known to be a a conservative evangelical congregation. And they couldn't figure out how someone who was considered to be beyond liberal could be comfortable there. But the reason why was because we both honored very deeply the sense of community. And I remember one of the quotes from one of my elders in that congregation will always stay with me. There was a young man in the congregation who was gay, who was fully welcomed, accepted, and considered part of the family because it was that kind of church. It was a family church. And I remember this elder coming to me and saying, Now, Pastor, I know the Bible is against homosexuality, but sometimes you just have to set principle aside and do the right thing. And that that quote really stayed with me because it seems to me that if you put people in a position of cognitive dissonance where they have to resolve that in favor of a person or a principle, most people, not all, but most people will go the way of the person. And I think that that's the grounds under which this conversation needs to move forward. So just because it's you and just because we're hitting the ball like this, then the nirvana end of the road space Right, the place where, because we all are fighting uphill, upstream for the thing, and we see uh, the next step, and so we're able to project. I'm wondering about your um, your fantasy, utopian vision of what the interactive nature of all of these things are in the absence of the conflict, or in the presence of fully embracing community. Like what what that looks like. From a policy perspective and from a from, from an actual on the street perspective. 
as it relates to Presbyterian mission, mostly in particular? I can imagine a church that has begun to take seriously, and I say begin because it's going to take a long time, uh, issues of race and class as well as issues of identity and where connections can begin to be made across those lines. When I first came to uh, West Park, one of the things that happened every summer that surprised me was that I was always uh, approached by a whole bunch of uh, gay couples from the Bronx who wanted, or other parts of the city, who wanted to be married. And frequently they were uh, I'll call them uh, mixed uh, religious couples who usually had one Pentecostal and one Catholic. And they felt multiple exclusions. They felt excluded from the religious community. They felt uh, excluded from their cultural community as Latinos, where there's a strong emphasis on machismo. But they also felt excluded from the mainstream gay community in terms of class and, and, and culture. And so I can begin to imagine a church that is truly inclusive and wrestles with issues that are going to take a long time to resolve that can overcome those barriers in the way that we understand that the early church sought to. And if we can do that, then I think we're beginning to become the kind of body of Christ that we're called to be. Another question, same category, same type of a impetus for the question. Um, so the issues then of race and class as they appear in this community, in terms of, you know, there are a lot of, of people who speak of the gay and lesbian liberation movement in, in ways that make it a parallel to or, or similar to the civil rights movement as it relates to the, the, the Voting Rights Act and all of that kind of thing. I'm wondering, and this group, as you mentioned, um, there's a specific absence of ethnicity, right? of ethnicity other than European, because Europeans are not I'm wondering, as you perceive this grouping of, of, um, of folks, what is the, at what point can those issues be introduced in the mix? What, 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 the conversation in the, in the gay and lesbian liberation movement um, has been about conclusion and based on the nature of the struggle, it's been pretty much you know, myopic, myopically focused on a specific set of issues, which happen to, you know, all liberation movements are cousins. Mm -hmm. So the, the question of how then to reach across, you know, how, how to have inclusive conversation about true community. Um, talk about the, the distance between where you see this grouping of folks now and that place where there can be an authentic um, discussion of those things. First of all, there have always been <clears throat> leaders within this movement, within this denomination, who fed that holistic perspective. There have been others who have been uh, pretty much in, as you described it, you know, the identity slot and thinking only about that. Uh, so that's an internal dialogue that has in some respects been going on but needs to be sharpened. 
and then I think it, it goes in two different directions. Uh, I teach uh, seminary in, uh, in Newark, and uh, most of my students are people of color, and they come, they're second career students, and I teach theologies of liberation, not liberation theology, but theologies and liberation, and make the distinction between that there are identity liberations, for example, uh, you know, women's liberation, LGBTQ liberation, etc. There's this more like a class liberation struggle as it emerged from Central America. Um, and then you have someone like James Cone, who sort of is like covers both categories at the same time. Uh, and it was amazing to me. Oh, and then, of course, we also introduced uh, uh, womanist theology, which came as a critique of black theology. It amazes me that as I enter into that with my students, some of them will go with me all the way until we get to this issue, and then they're out the door. Uh, coming the other direction, um, and, and I think it's really valuable that people like uh, Cornel West and uh, my friend Osegbiaf Fusepu, who wrote a book called God, Gays, and Guns, um, have begun lifting this up within the African-American community and opening up discussion there. So there's resources, there's, there's places to go. But coming the other direction, I think it becomes really incumbent upon those of us um, who are not part of that community to make ourselves present where those issues are being raised. I mean, you're not going to be able to have a conversation about inclusion if you're not willing to set your feet in the street around Black Lives Matter. I mean, the first thing that that opens this conversation is presence, just being there. Um, those of us who are older, as we've watched this movement begin moving forward, <clears throat> understand that uh, we're not going to be the leaders. We also understand that if we're there, and we're there, and we're there, there's trust begins to get developed, and then you have dialogue, you have conversation, there's a place where this can take place. This is a long process, and it's not like A, B, C, D, but it really does begin with presence and relationship, and, and it moves forward from there. That's a long answer to your question. But, yeah. <laughs> okay, my pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Always good to hang out with All you. All right.